to start off this morning. I want to say, you know, I am so thankful for being here. I mean, it's such a privilege that God is using me here in Milford and that I am the pastor of Valley Lines Church. I want to say thank you for you guys, to you guys for loving me and loving my family. And I want to say thank you for believing in us and also for not expecting us to be perfect and not expecting us to walk on water, but to simply be committed, because we are, we are committed. The Lord's brought us here and, and our commitment is to Him to serve faithfully. And I, and I want to thank you for Letting go to a lot of the things that you're familiar with and that you're used to and for flexing with me in what God is doing here. Um, and I want to share with you a quote from Winston Churchill. It was right at the time when it was really clear that England was going to win the war. And Winston Churchill said this, and in this quote he said, at a time of rebuilding, England was in ruin, and they had to rebuild. And England would look nothing like it, it, it did. It would never look the same again. They had to rebuild it. And Winston Churchill says, this is our finest hour. And as we restart this church and rebuild this church, this is ours. This is our finest hour. And I want to thank you for your trust in me. I want to thank you for trusting us, even though it looks different. It may sound different. But for trusting us in what God is doing here. Because God's doing it. And it's good. God is in it. And trust is huge. And I'm going to share with you a story. This is a story that uh, I saw on the internet. And it's about um, a pastor who left a congregation. And he left the congregation abruptly with really no warning. And the congregation was left in the wake of this leaving. And over time, they hired a new pastor. And as the pastor was getting ready to come, they were getting his house ready and his office ready. But they were still kind of hurt and they were still kind of broken up. And, and as they were getting the house and the office ready, they, they sat and were talking and they said, you know what, we really need to know what this new pastor is going to be thinking. We really need to know uh, whether or not he's going to be happy here. And, and we need to protect ourselves in case this, this guy leaves us. So what they did was they set up these microphones in his house. And they set up these microphones in his office. So they could listen in and figure out if he was happy at his church, at his new church. And at one point, they started recording some of the conversations he was having with his wife and his family and with other people over the phone. And, and uh, he was talking with people uh, from where he came from and just sharing prayer requests and things. They began to record these conversations. So at one point, they used these conversations to try to, to manipulate the pastor into doing what they wanted him to do. But man, it just blew up in their faces because it's illegal to plant secret microphones. It's illegal to record conversations. And when they presented to the pastor and said, and said you know, this is what we want you to do, and this is why, and listen to this. And we heard conversations of him and his family coming back at him through this recording. It just blew up in their faces. The whole thing fell apart. The pastor no longer had to trust the congregation, so he just, he was just like, that's it, I'm out of here. How can I lead a church that doesn't trust me and would do something like this? And the congregation was, was left again without a pastor. There was no trust there. And I just want to thank you for trusting us. I want to thank you for that because trust is huge. It's really huge. And I'd like to say that you are mine, but you're not. 
You're not mine, you're God's. The only thing I can claim is mine is my family. And they're my first priority, second only to Jesus. And there may come a point in time when, when God says, Joe, you've, you've, you've done some great work there in Milford, now it's time for you to go. And I pray that never happens. And I'm not making any announcements now. I pray that my life ministry is here in Milford. And I can help grow this church and expand in southern Utah. But if God does ever call that, God, no problems getting my resignation because my life is one of obedience to God. I'm not obedient to a church. I'm not obedient to a denomination. I'm not obedient to a congregation. I am obedient to God. And I need to stand before God. But my prayer is that I would fulfill my lifelong ministry here in Milford. But it hasn't been so far without its tests. And there will be tests in the future. And that brings us to a first point in our outline. Point one. As God begins to lead, He often tests us. And as we're reading in Exodus, we've got a reading plan that we've been following. And right now we're in Exodus. I've been, I've been thinking about this similarities between the ancient people of Israel and us, this congregation here today. And situations that, that we're in. And things that we're going through. And as we look at Exodus 13, this is what's going on here. Okay? 400 years of slavery. The Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians. 400 years. And it gets extremely more difficult to bear. Moses comes on the scene. God said to Moses, you go to Egypt, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But the more Moses leans on Pharaoh to let his people go, the harder Pharaoh gets on his people, on the Israelites. Things get tougher. They get harder, more difficult. And they cry out to God against Moses and for freedom and relief. And God led through Moses in this way. Because he knew if, if Pharaoh's hand was hard on them, he would push them out of Egypt. He would push the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses didn't want this job. Moses didn't volunteer for this job. He resisted so much it was blasphemy. And if he would have resisted anymore, God probably would have just took him out. But Moses had to be the man because he was the man God chose. He was the man God chose. He came and led the Exodus, which was a miraculous experience. It was a miraculous event. Four centuries of slavery. Four centuries of slavery. And all of a sudden they're free. God freed these people. And this is where we're, chapter 13 begins. This is what just happened. Okay, Moses says in chapter uh, 13, verse 3, Moses says, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving when the Lord brings you into the land. And I'll pause right there. When the Lord brings you into the land. He doesn't say if. He says when. If you look at verse 11, it says, After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you. When he brings you there. When he gives it to you. Not if. There was a reason they were leaving Egypt. There was a reason that they were moving forward. 
They were absolutely certain of their destination, and it was Canaan. But they had no idea how to get there. They had no idea how they were going to get there. They had no idea how God was going to lead them there. And God's full of surprises. And I kind of want to interrupt this right here and say, you know, that God is leading us. God was leading them out of Exodus, but God is, is leading us. And it's not that you haven't been led before. You guys have been led before. You've been led by a, a great man. And I'm grateful that I've never been compared to Pastor Mike. Not at least in my hearing. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the pastors that come between Pastor Mike and myself because they kind of prepared the way for me. And we didn't know what to expect when we journeyed to Norfolk. We had no idea, but we knew, or at least we thought it would be, there would be a certain and clear direction, or there would be a certain direction that we would go in. But, but as we got here, we learned that God's full of surprises. He's full of surprises, unexpected things. But the question is, is God really leading us right now? And as we look at thir uh, chapter 13, is God really leading the people of Israel? As a matter of fact, it says in verse 17, God did not lead them by the road through the Philistine country, though it was sure. So they're, they're probably thinking, okay, this is what God's going to do. He's going to lead us down to the road of Philistine because it's sure. It's easier. It's familiar. It's what we're used to. It's what we always do. But God doesn't lead by the familiar. And some of you, you know, got a little smile on your face because you, you know that God doesn't lead that way. He doesn't lead through the easy road. And some of you are frowning. Maybe God hasn't led in that way in your life yet. But I guarantee He has and He will. Think of the last 10 years. Would you have ever guessed the last 10 years would have played out the way that they have? Of course not. You have no way of knowing the future. Only God knows. And things have turned out the way they have because God is in control. You expected to go the way of the Philistines, right? But, but God said, no, you're going to go the way of the wilderness. And look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, So God led the people around by a desert road toward the sea. So why didn't God lead by the way of the Philistines? It was easier. I don't know. Nobody knows. Why didn't God lead in a predictable way? I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody understands God. Okay? And those who say they understand God the most, worry me the most. And they come smack dab to the Red Sea. God's awesome. He's unpredictable. And here they are at the Red Sea. And immediately the Israelites are faced with an adversary. Look at Verse 14, 8. Verse 14, 8. They're at the Red Sea. They've got the wilderness on one side. They've got the Red Sea on the other. They've got mountains. And then they have this, 14, 8. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, or the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who are marching out boldly. The Egyptians... The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen's troops pursued the Israelites. So 
they get on their, their chariots and they're bolting towards the Red Sea and all of a sudden Israel has an adversary right there by them coming at them. So what do they do? Well, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They're frightened. They're scared. The people who just experienced freedom from Egypt, 400 years of slavery, 3 million people in slavery, and God marches 3 million people and all of their animals and all of their possessions out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're scared. And they're saying, Moses, what kind of plan is this? You know, we're at the sea. What, what's the deal here? That blocked us in. Would we rather go back to being slaves in Egypt? Because it's easier. It's predictable. Think back to before I got here as pastor. Where you're probably thinking, well, we're going to have a new pastor. And we're going to fill up some seats. And we're going to have some leadership. We're going to be one big happy family. It's not that easy. That's not that easy. It's unpredictable. And I'm not perfect. And I make mistakes. But I learn from them. And I grow from them. And when you hit a Red Sea, what do you do? What do you do when you hit a Red Sea? Well, chapter 13, or verse 13, says this. Verse 13 says, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now Moses is the mediator. So the one that's saying do not be afraid here is actually God. And God says in his word, do not be afraid 365 times. Do not be afraid. That's one. Do not be afraid for every day of the year. God says do not be afraid. And if God says do not be afraid that many times, do you think he's serious about it? You see, fear doesn't come from God. Fear does not come from God. He says, do not be afraid. And the Israelites are there. They see the Egyptians coming. This great big cloud. Moses, what do we do? Don't be afraid. Don't worry. And you can, you can picture that family that's closest to the Egyptians. And they're looking back at Moses. And they're going, they're looking at that big dust of this army coming forward. And they're going, Moses, what? What do we do? And, and you continue reading. And he says, stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Stand firm. Be still. Stand firm. God has promised to deliver you. He's going to take care of you. Be still. Be quiet in prayer. Trust God. Be still. And you look at Moses going, this is the game plan? Be still. Stand firm. The Egyptians are moving in their direction. He says, don't worry. But then look at verse 15 and 16. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Other, other translation says move forward. Move on. Move forward. Well, moving forward means the Red Sea. That's what's forward. Move on. Move forward. Now, there's a time to pray. But there's a time to move on. See, if you stay in, in your prayer circle, if the Israelites would have stayed in their prayer circle, they would have never seen the miracle of 
parting the Red Sea. And they probably would have been wiped out right there by the Israelites. I mean, but by the Egyptians. But because they moved on, they stepped out in faith. They saw the miracle of God. They allowed God to work in their lives. So, verse 16. Go forward. 15, 16. Raise your staff and stretch, it, stretch your hand out over the sea and divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. So they're like, Lord, we don't know anything about the ocean. We're slaves. We can't build boats. We've never done that. We don't know nothing about the water. God says, fine. And he separates it. Dry ground. Go through. Move forward. He's leading them through the sea. And, and, and Moses didn't call the shots. He didn't call the shots. God did. But Moses was their leader. And he... He, he didn't really know what the future was. And in this moment, he didn't know. This is a moment-by-moment moment thing. He didn't know what God was doing the next moment. So moment-by-moment, moment, God is leading through Moses. And in verse 29, But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. This is a new kind of journey. Nothing's ever happened like this. They wanted the safety and the security of what they're familiar to back in Egypt. And God said, no, I'm leading you forward. And He separates the waters. Water on both sides. The wind comes through, dries the land. And this is a miracle. The land is dry. Wall of water on both sides. Now they said, well, we want to go back. We know how to handle that. We're used to that. We want to go back to that. And this is change. Change is not easy. It's hard. It's complicated. But God has changed it. What's going on here? You see, God has changed it. And because God is in it, it's good. It's good. Verse 31 says, And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, their servant. Does that mean that they looked at Moses and they put all their affection on Moses? No. Does that mean they expect Moses to walk on water? No. Not at all. He's human just like they are. But he's the leader. He's the one that God used. So in that position, he leads them. Even though he had no idea from one moment to the next what the God was going to do. It's tough leading the congregation, especially when you don't know what the future is. Now flip over to Numbers 11. Numbers 11. And there's something interesting going on here. See, the Exodus, at this point in Numbers 11, Exodus is over, it's history. The, the, the miraculous event of the Red Sea is history, and they're in the wilderness, and they're moving towards the promised land, they're moving towards Canaan. God has them moving full. But they get tired. If you've ever backpacked, you know what's going on here. They, they know that there's a destination, they know it's there, but 
but they're tired, the climb gets tiring, their legs burn, their stomach aches, they feel nauseous, they feel dizzy, and they're wondering, is it really worth it? And by this point in the Israelites' uh, story here, that the miraculous has become the day-to-day. -day. It's commonplace, and they're no longer excited about the newness of the journey. And they forget their slavery back in Egypt and they just think about the good times and when they were securely nestled under a tree. And that brings us to our second point. Resist the urge to complain. Look at, resist the urge to complain. Look at number, uh, verse 1, number 11. Now the people complained about the hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. That a fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed that the Lord, he prayed for the Lord, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. He prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. And then in verse 4, it says, The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. All we ever see is manna. They lost their appetite. They remember all the good things, the, the melons, the fruit, the onions, and the garlic. Their breath still sinks, but they lost their appetite. And all we have is this manna. Yuck! Who wants manna? We see it every day. Even though it was a miracle. It was a miracle by God. And Psalm 78 calls it angel's food. There has never been a meal catered like this before or after this. This was a miracle of God. Manna. And God never talked to Moses about the manna. God never said, Moses, what do you think about this? But Moses gets the brunt of it. And in verse 10, Moses heard the people of every family wailing in the entrance of their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. Some translations say he was depressed. Now this is something that every pastor or leader can relate to at some point in their ministry when they get troubled, when they get depressed. And he asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you? That you put this burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised? You see, the Israelites had expectations. They had expectations. Every person in this room or listening to this has expectations of some sort. How service should go. What songs we should sing. How I should preach. How I should lead. How I should talk. How I should act. And how I should inform you on what's going on. You see, God has gifted me differently than any other pastor you've ever had. Will I be able to lead like any other pastor you've ever had? No. Do you expect me to? I hope not. And we are in the midst of manna. And some people are choking on it. 
And we're not blaming each other. There's no nobody to blame. The Israelites, what did they do? What did they do? They kept moving forward. That's what they did. And at the end of verse 11, they were still moving forward. They were still going on. God still had them moving forward. It was different. It was new. And it was strange. But it was good. Because God was leading them. It was good. And I want you to know that before God, I want to lead this church in the right way. I'm not exactly sure what that is. But I do know it requires flexibility in all of us. Change. Because God has brought the change to Valley Alliance. And I've got to say, if all we get is sermons, then we don't have a church. We have a Bible study. And if you're not starting to relate more and more with people around you and with me and my family, then you haven't caught the disease of the church. And if you're not involved in another ministry in your life with a small group, then you're missing it. You're attending the theater and watching the show. And part of the reason the battle becomes tasteless is because we forget who sent it. We forget who sent it. It takes a heavenly appetite to enjoy heavenly food, and it takes a heavenly commitment to be deeply and heavily involved in someone else's life on a regular basis. I don't think Sunday services need to suffer. No, I don't think that at all. But I believe in my heart that there needs to be more and valid lives than Sunday service. Otherwise, all you have is an idol. See, if your eyes are on me instead of the Savior, and I fall, all this is going to crumble, just like it did before. How keep your eyes on the Savior? See, Moses fell and he didn't even get to go into the promised land. Joshua led them in. Joshua, the younger generation, led the younger generation in. See, the Israelites struggled with their new and different life. Rather than appreciate what the Lord was doing for them, they kept pushing for the familiar lifestyle. Like us, resisting what God is doing in the middle of the unfamiliar. Because God wants to drive you to a dependence on Him. Now we've got to look at a few things that are going on in this Israelite camp. What's going on is grumbling. What's going on is evil. Evil is running rampant through this, through this community, this Israelite community. And it's in our nature to resist change. It's in our nature to resist change. We long for safety of yesterday. And, and even though everything we know, it's not where God wants us. We know that. He doesn't want us in the past. And we worry, and we're anxious about today, and we're fearful about tomorrow, the giant of tomorrow. So we long for, for the comfort of yesterday. And with Moses, we can sympathize. The more we study about Moses, the more we can sympathize with him. These unfamiliar surprises that happen. Have you ever moved? If you moved in your life, you know there's unfamiliarness. There's challenges. Some are pleasant, and some aren't. And, and what's happening here in verse 1 is they're complaining. The Israelite camp, they're complaining about the change and the challenges. And, and this is what happens. When 
There's always one person in a family and several in the church that complain when things get hard or complain when things get uneasy or complain when things get too hot or we get tired or there's not enough variety in the diet. That's what's happening with the Israelites. In verse 5, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic. We remember all that stuff. But I love verse 8. And they say, you know, all we have is manna. And you go down to verse 8. And it says, the people went around gathering it, gathering the manna. And they ground it and hand milled it and crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot. They made loaves out of it. They tried to do all kinds of stuff with this manna. They prepared it in different ways. They tried everything. So the question wasn't what's on the menu because they knew it was manna. Manna every day, manna. The question was, what do we do with it? What are we going to do with it? And if you can believe it, at this point, right here, Moses' leadership goes under attack by his own sister and brother. And at verse point three, there will be tests that tempt us to go back. Okay, look at Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam. And Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his wife. So this is an unexpected attack. They begin to talk to Moses and they say, is this our only leader? And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But verse 13 was, says, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. So, so they're standing right now on the border of the promised land. And God says, I'm going to give it to you. Well, what you send these guys in? Send these spies in? He tells them who to send. They send these spies in. And the spies come back. And you look at uh, verse 25, and the spies give a report. 13 25 numbers. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community of Kadesh and in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them. And the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. So bring this fruit, this great big fruit, great big grapes and melons and, and garlic and onions and everything else there. Milk and honey. Yes, Moses, it flows with milk and honey just like you said. And Moses says, I didn't say it. God said it. But then in verse 28, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. Descendants of Anak, these are giants, these are great big people. The, the Amalekites live in Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites, and the Termites, and any other ites you want to imagine, they live here. They're big guys. And at this point, you can just picture they drop the fruit, the fruit's all over the ground, and they're pacing back and forth, and they're going, oh, what are we going to do about these giants? What are we going to do about these new cities? <coughs> because the, when you look through the lens of uncertainty, it magnifies. You look through the lens of fear, it magnifies the uncertainty. And God's voice becomes, they silence it. They silence God's voice. And they forget how big God is. And they forget the fruit of the land. And, the, and they focus directly on the size of the people and the size of the cities. 
And they forget how big God is. Even though none of these giants are all of them together are as big as God. And you know what they say? 14. Verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept out loud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. They cried and they wept against Moses. And then, and then it goes on to say, Why is it, Lord, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us uh, fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? We want to go back to the way it was before. And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So forget Moses' leadership. Let's choose another leader. Let's go back to the way it was before. See, it's our nature to keep going back to the familiar rather than to strap on faith and to step out into the future. The adventure, the excitement, the uncertainty, the delight of watching God open the seas and to block out completely the giants that would intimidate us. Here's a question. Why don't we go back to the way it was? Why don't churches go back why don't people who live and walk by faith go back to the way things were? Well, in this story, there's several reasons, and we're going to look at five. We're going to look at five reasons. The first one is clear direction from above keeps us from going back. And this is found in Exodus 13, 21 to 22. You don't have to turn there. I'll describe it to you. It's a cloud by day of smoke and a fire by night. It's clear direction from God is why we don't go back. They knew God was leading them. That's why they don't go back. And the way things used to be. And when I think about things like that, you know, well, I want to go back to the way things used to be in my life. Well, what I do is I look at the calling. And the calling is clear. The calling in my life is clear. I am where God has called me. And when you have that kind of direction, that kind of clarity, it's easy to handle things when all hell breaks loose in your life. Thank you, God, for the fire cloud. You've led us to where we are. The second thing is we want to think about that Red Sea, the wilderness, the Egyptians, and the water. What did they do? They couldn't build a boat. They couldn't walk on the water. So God said, okay, I will separate it from you. I'll open it up so you can walk through. The second reason we don't go back is incredible deliverance from danger. When you're faced with danger and God is in it, He provides deliverance. He, he delivers you incredibly. He delivers you, He gives you wisdom when you need it. He delivers protection when you need it. He delivers encouragement right when you need it. And I've heard a missionary say, you know, I know that God is in us being here. We see God working in every day of our lives. We see God working and doing things that are reaffirms that we are where God has called us to be. And the fathers say the same thing. We see God working here. We know that we are where we are called to be. The third thing is when Moses heard the attack from his sister and his brothers, he didn't defend himself. He didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. Just a picture of humility and stability. 
So the third reason we don't go back is timely relief from discouragement. What goes right on with number four in your outline? Internal protection from attack. See, Moses never answered his sister and his brother for attacking him. He just stood his ground. He just stood his ground. Moses learned from his past mistakes. Moses had his own plan before, and as he was trying to carry it out, protect it, defend it, he murdered somebody. So this time he says, you know what, God, this is your plan. You're in control here. And I'm not going to defend it. You're going to have to. And oh, did he? Oh, did God defend it? In verse 9, chapter 12 of Numbers, verse 9, the anger of the Lord burned against them. And he left. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. See, if you don't think that God can come to your fence, if you don't think that he can give you stability during attacks, if, you, if he can cause temporary leprosy, believe me, he can cause your critics to be silenced. And if you're doing anything risky in leadership, you're going to be attacked because the people you're leading don't want to change. And if you run back to Egypt, you nullify your faith. You step in and you cut God short. You short-circuit His opportunity to do what man cannot. Stand firm and believe Him. Give Him the opportunity to bring the miracles, even if it's at the last second. Even if it's at the last moment. And Moses has got all this in the back of his head. Right? And when his sister says, is he the only leader? What does Moses have to prove? Especially to her. God proves it. And fear sweeps through the camp. Then in chapter 13, Moses sends in spies. They come back. They say, lands filled with milk and honey. But there's this great big giant. They say, oh, let's go back to Egypt to the way things were. And the fifth reason that we don't go back is because of extreme discipline from God. 14.20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. God was ready to wipe these people from the face of the earth. He was angry at them. They, he was ready to wipe them out. But Moses prayed. In verse 21, Nevertheless, as sure as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. While we're looking at five, there's ten times here. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised. On oath to their ancestors, not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. God says that these people that he's been taking care of, that he freed, that he's provided for, and brought them to the border, he says they will never see the promised land. But the next generation will. The younger generation will. He'll bring them into the land. And, and Joshua will lead them in. And God systematically took out that entire generation. He wiped them from the earth. Do you think God feels strongly about going back to Egypt? Do you think that he would take measures like this if he did? Look at verse 30. Chapter 14, verse 30. The Lord... I'm sorry. 
Not one of you will enter the land I swore with an uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua were two spies that went in, and when they came out, the other people were talking about the giants. They remained faithful to God. Those two will be allowed to go in. Moses doesn't even get to go in. Because Moses, when they were traveling in the desert, God said to Moses, speak to the rock and water will come out of it. Well, Moses had a temper and he got angry. He took his staff and he struck the rock. He didn't speak to it. Water came out of it because God's faithful and he wanted to take care of his people. But Moses was angry and God said, because of your anger and you disobeyed me, you will not see the land. You will not go into the land. When God does something, it looks different than anything a human would do. When a human does something, you can see the logic in it, the human logic. You can see the plan in it. You can see the materials that were bought for it. God does not make skyscrapers, but humans do. It's a touch of human genius, but there's not one human that can make a star. God does the impossible. Humans can't. Humans can accomplish a lot, but they can't do the impossible. And there's countless churches that say, you know, we're going to just stick with things the same old way. Let's just have a service that starts this way and ends this way. And let's have this routine that goes like this. And let's do this in this ministry, that ministry. Because that's the way we've always done it. That's what we're used to. That's what we're like. That's what we like. That's what's familiar. And God says, oh yeah, well I will write on the door, where is my glory? And that's what happens when churches decide to just settle in. They take up a defensive mode of operation and just hang on until the rapture comes. Where in the world is that in the Bible? Let's just hold on until the end. There's no, that's nothing more than an Egyptian magnet drawing the Israelites back. It's the way things were before. Let's keep it safe. Let's survive. Let's keep it controlled. Let's structure it. I'm going to play a video for you real quick as an illustration. And then we'll wrap this up. Stop the team. Whatever. You know, it's just there's so much instability, so much that we don't understand, that, that we don't know. For me, growing up, it was a, a lot of you guys know my mom died giving birth to me. And my dad remarried and my stepmom died in a car accident when I was nine. Then my dad got married again. Then my dad died of cancer when I was twelve. And so I'm in junior high, my mom's dead, my stepmom's dead, my dad's dead. The only close relatives I had were my, my aunt and uncle, George and Sandra. And then when I was in high school, they got in a fight, and my uncle George shot and killed my aunt, and then stuck the gun to his own head. Himself. So I'm 16 years old, and this is life to me, going, man, what's next? Everything seems to be falling apart, and we get a little rude, we get a little scared. And this is what Christians do, you know, they try to serve God, but then things get a little rocky, and things get a little unstable. And so we go, okay, that was nuts, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to live like that. Let me, uh, let me hold on. And this is your routine. This is what so many people do. They go, you know what? I'm not going to try anything crazy. I'm just going to sit here and uh, I'm just going to hold on. And uh, this is what you look like. You just go, uh, this is what people do. You know what? I'm just going to have my nice little family. 
we're just gonna, um, you know, we're just gonna keep to ourselves. We live in a gated community. I'm gonna homeschool my kids. Make them wear helmets everywhere. I'm gonna, um, you know, I'm not gonna let them outside. This son has bad rays. I'm gonna, um, you know, it's on and on and on. And you just live your life in the safety of I don't want to do anything crazy for God. I just, I just want to, you know, go to church on Sundays and maybe give like two percent. Um, and uh, maybe serve and help them nursery because then I feel guilty. And then you do this your whole life, and then you, you go your greatest prayers like God. You know what? I would love to die in my sleep and not even feel it, and then just go up to heaven. And so you want to die like this, just in your sleep, ooh, right in the middle of dream, good dream, the dream you're going to heaven, and you don't even feel it. And then suddenly you wake up, you stand before the judge, and you go. Now, if, uh, could you imagine, could you imagine watching the Olympics, you know, and some girl does that, just gets up there, starts straddling the thing, and then steps off and goes, what is the judge supposed to do on the card? You see, and to me, I go, man, that's the routine that so many Christians are headed for. That's the routine, the boring, I do nothing crazy because I don't want to fall. I, that's the routine that they're going to live, and then one day it's going to be a shock because they're going to step off that balance beam and realize they're standing before the judge. They're standing before the judge, and you think he's going to look at that routine and go, wow, well done. Well done. You lived the safest life possible. You didn't slip. You didn't fall. See, that's not the life that God's called us to. That's where the majority will head. But I don't want to go where the majority goes. You know what God wants from us? He wants us to move Forward, just like the Israelites are doing. Move forward. Keep going further. It's not my game plan. It's his. Now, I don't like risks unless I know the outcome. I make a terrible gambler. But something like God's will isn't a gamble. It's not a gamble. It's just clear and absolute as his nature. Like a mighty army that moves the church of God. And we're treading where saints have tried. And the army is on the move. And it's not camping on the backside of the desert. It's a movement that the gates of hell cannot stand against or be able to stop. So there's three responses that we're going to look at here in the end. There's three responses. First, I'm going to give you the, the reason for the responses, and then I'm going to give you the responses. The reason for the responses, it is the desire of our God to display His different message to the world around us. It's a message that is distinct from the rest of the world. The world looks at it, scratches his head. And the more they do, the more he's pleased. Because it's the salt and the light that makes them wonder and makes them think. And here's the responses. The first response is, Lord, intensify your distinctives in me. If you want to be a person that lives 
with a heart for the future and is continually ready to be flexible, that's your response. Lord, intensify your instinctives in me. The second thing, Lord, increase the risk. Wow, that's good. But it's scary. If there's no risk, there's no faith. But in faith, no risk, no faith. In faith, there's this process that's learned over time. And it's like if you, if you step out, if it's difficult, but you step out and you take a risk, each time you do it becomes easier and easier and easier. You go a little further. You're able to do something a little more risky next time. Have you ever learned to ski? It's, it's a good analogy. Learning to ski. Because each time you get a little further, you're more confident in what you're doing now, you're able to be, take on riskier, riskier hills. And this becomes kind of a, a drive of passion if you ski. I remember the first time I went skiing. I was terrible. I was terrible. We go up this lift. I had a, uh, a, an instructor scheduled, but he wasn't ready yet. He had a couple more classes to do before me. So me and my brother and my cousins were all on the hill, and we said, okay, we'll go up. We'll try to teach you a little bit before your lesson, they said to me. So we get up there. We get off the ski lift. And we're sitting there, my cousin, she's an avid skier, she goes down the hill, she, 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 she. my brother's like, all right, so what I want you to do is I just want you to, to, to start, and he pats me on the shoulder, and I start to move. And I didn't know what to do. And I'm on this bunny hill, right? And, and our bunny hills in the Poconos are just like mole hills compared to what we have here in, in the Rockies. And I'm going down this hill, and he's talking, he doesn't notice I'm going, and I keep going, and I'm picking up speed, and he's back there now. And he's like, where are you going? And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm going down this hill, and my cousin's going, do, 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 and I'm passing her by because I'm going straight down this hill. And she's like, stop. And I'm like, I can't stop. And she's like, just fall. I don't want to fall. And I go down the hill, over to the bottom of the hill, and I slowly stop. And then I fall. And I'm scared to death. But when I got to the ski instructor, I was, I'm the worst skier. And, and he was the only one that had any confidence that I would get better. Because he said, you know, as bad as you are, you can't get any worse. You can only get better. So by the end of the day, I started to learn these techniques which allowed me to take on a bigger hill. I took on a bigger hill. It was scary. And it wasn't graceful. I didn't look great doing it, but I did it. You know, it's the only way that I can compare the walk of faith is, is, is to, to try to step out in faith and take that risk. The first time it's scary, it's hard. But then you know that God is in it. You know that He's there for you. And it's a mystery of it all that makes it so powerful. It's the mystery, the power of God that makes it magnificent. And the third Response is more to enlarge the power. Because if you're going to ask God to, to, to make you a distinctive person, and then you're going to ask God for more risk, you're going to want more power from God. You're going to want His power in what you're doing. So Lord, give you more power. See, man can burn a bush, but it takes God to keep it going. It takes God to keep it going. I want to share a quote with you from A.W. Tozer. Now, Tozer was an alliance pastor. And he wrote a lot of books. And he has this to say about the church. It says, the church began in power, moved in power, and moved just as long as she had power. When she no longer had power, she dug in for safety. And she sought to conserve her gains. But her blessings were like manna. When they tried to keep them overnight, it bred worms and stank. So we have systems, and we have structures, and we have formats. 
And they all have been inducted, indicted to the same thing. Absence of spiritual power. And in church history, every return to power, to New Testament power, has been marked by a new advance somewhere for the gospel or an upsurge in missionary zeal. And every lack of power has seen the rise of mechanisms and conservations and defense. Now since power is a word of many uses and misuses, Tozer goes on to describe, to define what he means. He says, first, I mean a spiritual energy of sufficient voltage to produce great saints. Once again. Second, I mean a spiritual anointing that will give a heavenly anointing to our worship that makes our meeting place sweet with the presence of divine, with, with God's divine presence. And third, I mean that heavenly quality that defines the church as a divine thing. We must know the awe-inspiring mysteries of men and churches when they are full of the power of God. Lord, don't let us dig in. Challenge us to the very length of our ability to stand. So you need to pray magnificently for the wisdom of God in this ministry. And add to it, Lord, if it means some inconvenience for us, have at it. Because I'd rather have a burning bush with God in it. How I warn you against limiting God's limiting the holy God of Israel from doing whatever he's trying to do here. Limiting by wanting to play it safe or, or wanting to have the same old routine at church. Now I give you my word. I will not give in to that. If you give me your word, you will not give in to it as well. As we stand at the Red Sea, we will move forward. Let's pray. Father, we just looked at three responses, Lord. And we want to pray those right now. Lord, Pray that intensify that your distinctives in me. Lord, increase the risk. Lord, enlarge the power. Father, give me the desire for your will. Help me to forget the comforts of Egypt. As a people, we look for the logic in it all. Lord, keep us from taking credit for your work here. Lord, keep us from using this is how we've always done it. Remove that from our thoughts and our words. Help us to start Fresh and new. Let the Holy Spirit lead and fill us to move forward in relaunching this church. A fresh new vision. If it means giving up a personal dream that we had in mind, then so be it. We give it up. Whatever it takes, push us on. Help us not to look backwards. Whatever the risk, we openly declare we are willing. 